Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So today, we have a very special guest, Bill George, who is a professor over at Harvard Business School, the former CEO of Medtronic, former executive vice president of Honeywell, and former board member of companies like Target, Goldman Sachs, ExxonMobil, Novartis, and the World Economics Forum USA. In 2014, the Franklin Institute awarded him the Bauer Award for Business Leadership, and he was elected into the National Academy of Engineering in 2012, naming one of the top 25 business leaders in the past 25 years by PBS. So, Professor George, it's an honor to have you on the podcast today to discuss your new book. How's it going? Thank you, Seamus. Things are going great. And I'm very excited about my new book, an emerging leader edition of True North. True North has become kind of a classic of the ideas have, and many more people adopted it than I thought would. But I think now we're ready for a new generation of leaders to step up. And uh, I think in many ways, the baby boomers have taken us down the wrong track. I feature a number of progressive people who are forerunners of the new generations. But I think now it's a time to open the door and allow many of our younger leaders to step up into major positions of responsibility, because I think they understand today's world. Today's world, Seamus, is a world of, frankly, coping with crisis. And so many of the older leaders were trained in stable things and how do you grow a business in stable markets like we had in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's not that world today. We're going careening from one crisis to the next. And, you know, I don't need to go all the way back to 9-11 but, and the financial meltdown of 2008. But, you know, right today, COVID, then Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has triggered this huge inflation. And now we may go into the recession and supply chain. But, you know, the biggest issue right now is that people are rethinking what do they want to do with their lives and careers. And that's led to the so-called great resignation. I think it's more a rethinking of where do I want to devote myself? And I think that's really great. And I hope my book will trigger people to think about if I'm going to spend all this time at work and I'm going to devote myself to it, what do I want to do with my life and how am I going to make a difference? I agree. Well, I look forward to the conversation. And I think younger generations bring in new innovative ideas. And I think it's time we see that in the business world. But before we dive into that in the book, let's start back at the beginning with your first experience as a leader. Well, I my big first bit, I had lots of experiences as a try. I want to be leader back in in high school and, and college. And I had a lot to learn. I lost seven elections in a row, one for president senior class in high school and six when I went to Georgia Tech. And I spent a lot of time kind of rethinking my own self-help, the leadership development plan and finding out what I was doing wrong because I, I kind of was building a resume more than I was building relationships. And leadership is all of our relationships with people. 
And uh, I didn't get that. And somewhere about my sophomore year in college, I really got that and understood that. And I've tried to do that the entire rest of my life. And But then I had an opportunity. I went straight through to business school, got an MBA, went to government for three years, but wanted an opportunity to lead something at a young age. And I had a mentor who I went to work for, and he gave me the, the best career opportunity I had at 27 years old. I started the consumer microwave oven business for Linton Industries. And we became number one in the market with like 36% of the U.S. market. Huge rocket ship, hard to keep up with. I learned so much, had to hire people twice my age, twice my salary, and things happening so fast. And it was just a great experience. And I learned more about business in that period, those nine years, and just about any other time. And I loved it. And I loved the opportunity of, I wasn't an entrepreneur in the classic start of my own business. I was an entrepreneur in this company where we were building something very exciting. But I really felt we were helping a lot of people. That was when people, two careers started up and more women are going to work professionally. And it was an opportunity to make their cooking easy when they came home. And so I felt like we were doing a lot of good stuff on the forefront of new things and new innovations. And it was very technology-based. So we drove our business with innovation because I believe, Seamus, innovation is the key to America. There's no country in the world now, look, I love other countries. I love working. I lived in Europe twice and I love working in Asian countries. But there's no country in the world that has the opportunity for entrepreneurs like America does. For sure. I totally agree with your point on innovation because last month I had Spencer Raskoff, who's the co-founder and former CEO of Zillow on the podcast. And we talked about his journey scaling his business from just a few employees to hundreds of employees. And one of the things he said he was most proud of was his abilities to sustain that culture of innovation for a long time. And I think that's super important, especially in companies in the US. Let's go into your book. So you talk in your book, you walk through leadership stories of some of the most successful entrepreneurs and business-minded people like Satya Nadella, Ken Frazier, Warren Buffett, and many more. One story that really caught my attention in the book was Howard Schultz. Back when he was seven, you talk about how his father lost his job, family health care, and didn't have any savings to fall back on. With those types of life experiences, he wanted to create a company that his father would enjoy working for. So what was your experience as a leader at Medtronic and creating that strong company culture? Well, I was blessed to go to a company started by an entrepreneur, a man named Earl Bakken, who invented the pacemaker. And it's his only invention, but it launched the whole company. And Earl was a visionary. And so we honored what that founder did. And it was all about innovation. And the company had to continue to innovate. And as you get larger, sometimes innovation dies. We've seen a lot of big companies where innovation went away. There was no innovation in General Electric. That's why they basically are going out of business now or, or peeling everything off. But at Medtronic, that was my whole focus. Put the money into innovation, support the Mavericks. Some of the people who do the innovators, Seamus, are not your typical corporate people, but you got to support them and you keep funding them and give them. And you have to accept the fact that there are a lot of their ideas are going to fail. And that's OK. If you don't have a tolerance for failure with innovation, you'll never innovate. Because you have to have people the courage to have new ideas. But people were so passionate and Medtronic about saving a life. And, you know, if we could do this with cerebral palsy, if we could help people with Parkinson's, think of what we could do. If we could really have these breakthroughs into getting in spines, all kinds of things. And so that's what made Medtronic during my time was branching out from that core pacemaker idea into many new forms of innovation that really help people. 
And we use a metric at Medtronic, not how much money did we make today, because people in the company didn't relate to that. You know what they related to? Is we had a metric. How many seconds will it take until another life, another person's life is restored by a Medtronic product? And when I went there, it was 100 seconds. When I left, it was seven seconds. Today, it's two per second. So you can see the growth of the company. But that's what people are proud of. And they would go home and tell their families and their friends, hey, we're in the business saving lives. I, yeah, I work on a production line. I work as a technician in the lab. I work in the IT department. We're in the business saving lives. That's what I tried to bring that home all the time to inspire people. And we found with people of all ages, and we had we were a very young company, so we had a lot of, just like we did a Litton Microwave, a lot of young people coming into the company. And my job was to open the door and give them opportunities to step up and take leadership roles throughout the company. And I did that and it bended some of the old guard when I first went there, but it needed to be done because we needed that energy, that innovation and creative spark. Yeah, I totally agree. And speaking of, we see founders like Brian Chesky, who is the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. And what he has done is he's now forcing executives to stay at Airbnbs, at least for a certain period of time, so they know what that experience is like for the customer. What is the importance for executives to get involved with the smaller parts or, or with the most important parts of the business at the consumer end? Well, you need to be out with your customers all the time. You need to know the experience. If I were Brian Chesky, I'd be out staying in various Airbnb around the world to see what the experience is like. When I was at Medtronic, Seamus, I actually had a high-tech background for and an engineering background for like 30 years when I came to Medtronic or 25, but I didn't know anything about medicine, nothing. You know what I did? I went out and went put on the, the gown, gowned up, put on the green, sat with, went into the coppering room with the doctor, watched an open heart surgery, watched a defibrillator implanted, you know, watched a brain surgery or a spine surgery. So I understood the process. And today I tell people, if you want to be a leader, you got to be out with your customers all the time. If you're in the retail business, you need to be in stores every day. You need to know what's going on. If you don't like that, if you'd rather be sitting in the ivory tower, then you're in the wrong job. And you got to be excited about the business and see, because that's where you learn. It's what I call the last three feet between you and the customer. And if you don't understand that last three feet, you don't understand on an airline how the flight attendant either makes you feel good about being there or they make you feel lousy. That's the difference. And people make that difference. And so your job, I think, is to inspire your people. It's not just to sit back and have meetings. I agree. And just yesterday, I was talking to Mark Cuban, who recently founded Cost Plus Drugs, providing affordable drugs to Americans. Now, he and Dr. Ashmayinsky founded the company, and we talked about the importance of your founding team. Each team member has to be able to have their own strengths and complement each other's weaknesses. What should executives look for when hiring team members, especially when hiring those joining an executive team? Well, think about it. You got, you got a sports team. I happen to love soccer, but could be football, could be basketball, could be baseball. You need the best people in every position on the field. And you have to find their sweet spot, which we talk about in the book. The sweet spot is that place where you're highly motivated and it plays to your strengths. So you don't want to take a person that's really great in marketing and necessarily make them the CFO. You got to put them on the field in the right place. And I think that's, I had a medical doctor. I, like I said, I know about medicine who is my vice chairman, our vice chairman of Medtronic. I was talking to him every day, getting his advice. And he was smarter than I was. And he did an amazing job helping me understand the medicine and the rest of the company and guiding them. 
So you need those experts. People are really good. Now, he wasn't great at running businesses, but he was really good. So you want to surround yourself with a team. As one of the people said to me, you know, if you, you was an all-state football quarterback, he said, if you have 11 quarterbacks on the team, you lose every game. You need to have people that are good in every position. So that's what you're, when you're starting a company or you're building a big company, you want to get diversity on the team, not just uh, of, of expertise, of knowledge, of experience. And so you can have that team. But then the key for any leader is getting them to play together as a team. And if people don't want to play as a team, then they have to leave. You know, if they're outside the circle, you listen to their opinions, you take all those opinions. I had a strong policy that we will not make a decision until everyone in the room, whether they're an engineer or an executive vice president, put their position on the table. Then you make a decision and it may not be unanimous. And some people may be on another side. I go back. To, I would go back and talk to them later and say, Seamus, you know, I know that you didn't agree with this, but now I need you to support it. I need you to go back to your people and be enthusiastic about supporting this decision. Because as CEO, there are other factors I have to take into account maybe than you do. And I understand your position, but we all have to be rowing. It's like a crew on the Charles River outside my condo in Boston. You know, they all have to be, pro- they have to be pulling the oars the same way. Anyone who's not can't be on the boat. That's a really great point. And in the book, you sketched a graph of your leadership journey in three phases. Phase one, which is preparing for leadership. Phase two, which is peak leadership. And then phase three, which is generativity. Would you mind walking through each of the phases and the skills required for leaders at each level? You know, when I was your age, Seamus, I thought it was like a rocket ship to the moon. You go through (laughs) your education, you come out of school and you take off. And one day you wind up in the CEO suite and that's your peak. Life isn't like that. It's a journey. It's more like climbing a mountain. There are a lot of ups and downs, and you think you got to a peak, and the next thing you know, hey, there's a higher peak out there, but you got to go down in the valley to get there. And I think leadership is much more like that, a lot of ups and downs. And you have what I call a crucible. That's your most defining experience. And I've had several crucibles in my life. I mentioned losing seven elections in a row. Uh, But these crucibles show you what life is all about. And I did spend a decade at Honeywell in the middle of my career. I was en route to be CEO of a company. My father had always wanted me to be CEO of a great company. Honeywell is a great global company. I ran Honeywell Europe for three years. Fantastic. Came back, got mired into bureaucracy. Look, I am not pro-bureaucracy. So I was not good at that, of playing the game, you know, the numbers game and all this. And it, it was I had so many businesses, nine businesses, three groups. I wasn't happy. And so one day I finally realized that even though <clears throat> I was the leading candidate to become the next CEO of Honeywell, that wasn't where I was happy. And I went to Medtronic, a much smaller company, much more entrepreneurial, much more innovative. And we had a lot of work to build the company, but I was much happier there because we could really make a difference in people's lives and you could feel it. So that was the phase of what I call peak leadership. But often in peak leadership, you go down into that valley I talked about where you find out where you really should be. And, it, you know, Medtronic is a much smaller company than Honeywell, but it didn't matter. What mattered to me is the work we were doing mattered and the people mattered. And I felt like I was at home. And then I put a 10-year limit on being CEO. So now I'm 58, 59. And a colleague of mine from Harvard said, Bill, you know, you probably got 30 years to live. Aren't you a lot wiser than you were 30 years ago? And think about all the things you've done. What can you do now? And so I went to, to, to teach because I felt like I could deal with people and address people, you and listening into this podcast. We had potential, but help show them the way. 
in more of a what you might call mentoring or coaching sense, and uh, and but cutting across a wide swath of businesses, geographies, uh, working with a company in France this morning, all over the world. And so I love doing that. And it's kind of a different period, what I call a period of generativity. And Eric Erickson, actually, that's his phrase. But it's a time when you're helping other people. So my purpose, if you will, my, my North Star is to enable leaders to develop so they reach their full potential. So you're a lot younger than I am. I would love to help you develop so you reach your full potential. Not what I want you to do, but what I think you could do. Bring it. I'd like everyone on this podcast to listen and say, are you reaching your full potential? Or are you stuck? Are you in a job that you don't care about? Are you just trying to put food on the table every week? No, think about your life. And this is your life. You only got one time to walk on this earth as who you are. And you got to be who you are. And if the company wants you to be something different than you are, you have to fake it to make it, which we've seen some people out there. Like you won't ever be happy. So you got to be in an environment where it flourishes and allows you to grow and reach your full potential. And if you have a boss that's trying to hold you back, maybe you need to find a different boss because you want to be able to do everything you can do. And you want a boss or someone that's going to help you reach your full potential. Maybe they'll be very critical of you. Maybe they would say you're not giving us your best game, but give you the opportunity to do so much more than you ever thought you could and open the door for you to do that and give you the opportunity now like I had. That's a great point. You only have one shot, and it's important that you take that opportunity to really make a difference and hit that full potential. And when it comes to the hiring model, hire slow, fire fast is often used as a general guide. When an open position has to be filled, and many business owners and executives will try to fill the position as fast as possible. Why is that an issue, and why should executives hire slow and then fire fast? Well, I made a couple of big mistakes in my life. I remember at Medtronic, I organized, reorganized company in the first nine months I was there to make it a global organization. It was the right organization, promoted someone to be president of Europe, highly experienced senior executive, a lot older than I was, knew the business. Six months after I promoted him, the general counsel comes to my office. I have an open door policy. He closes the door and said, can I call up our chief auditor? And what they showed me is that this uh, gentleman had been running a bribery fund on behalf of Italian doctors. And so obviously that was violation of Medtronic policies, violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, everything you can think of. So I asked him to come over where he's from his office in Belgium and terminated him. And of course he accused me of imposing American values on Europeans. And I said, no, John, these are, these are Medtronic values. These are global values. But see, that was the easy part, Seamus. Let me tell you the hard part. Hard part was going back to the executive, back to the board meeting and say, I made a mistake. He didn't change. I didn't check out his values. And so if you hire fast and you don't know, is somebody a fit with your culture? Are they that have the personality? Maybe they have all the paper skills, but who's the human being? Who are they? And you know, a lot of people, like I say, fake it to make it. They can look good on, they build up great resumes. They look good on paper. They know how to talk a good game. But when you find out who's the real person, and you've got to do that. I made another mistake later in my career. And so I think you want to hire people because they are really the kind of people you want to be with. They're good people. They have good values. And they're aligned with the purpose. Your company has a purpose. In Medtronic, we're restoring people to full life and health. But every company has to have a purpose. And how do you bring people together around that purpose and a sense of shared values? You don't need to pay bribes. I'm very anti any kind of in 
you know, integrity violations. But if people don't share those values, it's not going to work. And so I think you really have to bring people together around shared. And it's worth taking your time to find a group of people where you share a common goal, a common purpose, and a common set of values, beliefs. And when taking those meetings, what are some of the things that you look for to make sure that that candidate aligns with the values and is a good fit for the team? Well, I think you want to be interviewed by many different people. My wife, Field, was uh, as a psychologist doing a psychological evaluation. I'm a big believer that you should have a third party interview them to find out what, where they really are, what are their real. And I like to ask people, Seamus, tell me, what is the diff- most difficult time? What's your crucible? I just told you my. What's yours? What's the most difficult time that you've had? But more importantly, it's not having it. What did you learn from it? What did you learn from that experience? And that's, we constantly, we have to be learning in life. I feature Satya Nadella, the transformative leader of Microsoft, arguably the greatest leader in the business world today. And he said, you know, Microsoft, we thought we were a bunch of know-it-alls and we were God's gift of creation. He had to change all that. We have to be learn-it-alls. We have to continue to want to grow. And if you have people working for you that don't want to grow or they think they know it all, it's not going to work. And so you don't want to have those because you want to find people that are really curious, that want to learn about your business, that are really curious about taking that business forward and understanding your customers, understanding the business and moving it to where it and what the potential for it is. So I think you want to find out what kind of what's who's the person beneath the facade, you know, and let's get beneath that and find out who people are. And I think most younger people today, the emerging leaders I'm writing for in this emerging leader edition are pretty open people. I think that's changed. In my generation, my father's generation, people were kind of buttoned up, you know, three-piece suits. They look good, but, you know, you didn't know who the real person was. I think today people are much more open and they say, look, I don't want to work for your company unless we have a common purpose. I said, great, let's talk about it. Not everyone does. It's okay. There are other places to work, but if they have that, then you've got tremendous power in in your organization. For sure. And ultimately, some of the greatest opportunities just don't fall into the lap of everyone. So, for example, in the workforce, according to HubSpot, 85% of jobs are filled through networking. And according to CNBC, 70% of jobs are never published publicly. What can candidates do to find those dream jobs, reach their full potential, and have the best chance of working for the company of their dreams? I think you build a network of people who really know you, not just a superficial network, not just a lot of big name people. I think you build a network of people who know you. And frankly, those are the kind of people that should be helping you find opportunities. I often, I'm a great believer in LinkedIn. That's a Microsoft subsidiary, as you know, because people... They have it all out there. They got their whole resume out there, their educational background, where they've ever worked, what they believe in. But that's where you connect with people, where you find a good connection. And I think that kind of networking. But don't just do superficial networking. I've had people try to use me, uh, students that want to just use me, quote, as a network to get them a job. That's not my job. My job is help you find what you really want to do. And then I refer a lot of people. I'm mentoring uh, many, many dozen, maybe hundreds of people right now who call me up and say, hey, I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm thinking about leaving. Let's talk about it. Here's an opportunity. Have you thought about this? So I'm ha- quite happy to do that. So I think you need in your life uh, mentors who have trod those that road before, who've had the experience. I even had a, have a mentor at Harvard who's uh, 15 years younger than I am. 
But uh, he's been in academia forever. He became our dean at Harvard Business School, and he's become the best mentor I've had in how to get into academia. So, you know, I needed somebody to coach me. So we all need those coaches in our lives. And so I'm a great believer in doing that. So if you're looking for a job opportunity, make sure it's a good fit for you. Not just a good salary, not just a good title, but is it the culture and the group of people you want to be in? And I found out when I went to Medtronic, I felt like I was coming home. And I didn't even know the people, but I felt like I was in an environment where I could really relate to the people and we could be on this journey together. Yeah, I agree. I think curiosity is super important and always having the ability and wanting to learn from people who are farther along in their path, which is one of the reasons why I do this podcast and ask a lot of questions. But I talked with Spencer Raskoff, as I mentioned, or earlier, but Reed Hoffman, who's the co-founder of LinkedIn, refers to the five stages of a company as like family, tribe, village, city, and nation. And as you progress through that list, it becomes harder and harder to sustain that innovation. But while you were at Medtronic, you were able to grow the market cap from a billion to over 55 billion, and that's in the long term. How did you manage building that culture and team at scale? Well, I've, it is true that larger companies tend to be less innovative. Let me tell you, they become bureaucratic. You talk about states and nations. Yeah, things become very slowed down. So what you have to do, and I'm a strong believer in this, you break it into many smaller businesses. And that gives more people a chance to be general managers, more people a chance to be entrepreneurs and innovative with their business. So at Medtronic, we had like 20 different businesses and they were all had separate P&L statements and they all operated within the context of healthcare, within the context of medical technology, but each of them had their own market. They were targeting parts of, if you will, of the human body or disease states. And uh, they had a team to do that probably in different locations. In fact, they were all in different locations. And it's harder to manage, but much better. And it, it costs more. You could be, if you want to go efficiency, you just cram everything together and you have a, a giant functional organization. All the way back in my Litton microwave days, I wrote, I was writing an article for the Harvard Business Review talking about how you don't want to have a functional organization. You want to have teams come together, people from different disciplines to work together as a team. That's the only way you build a business. So then you get a lot of exciting businesses they're each building their own way with their own markets, their own cap, and they're out there. Again, it's not the most efficient. Most efficient is being centralized. So a lot of companies get into this bureaucratic thing. We can make more money. And you'll see big companies announcing, oh, we're taking a billion in costs out. That's probably the beginning of the end. Because once they start cutting costs, like General Electric did, then they're not really building anything. So you want to be a builder. Yeah, there are times to take costs out. And there are times that you have to take a business and shut it down. Medtronic had a big article in the paper the other day. They, I wasn't involved, but they just shut down their LVAD business. This is for people with, that are dying of heart failure. But it's not, I never liked the business. Didn't think, it didn't work out for them. Hey, things like that happen. And then you take the general manager who is a good person and give him a bigger job somewhere else. So you have to give people those. But that's how you grow, being a general manager. I think it's the best, best growth path anyone has. Because you're going to face these crises. You're going to face difficult times. The FDA is going to recall a product or, you know, you need to face those difficult times. Anyone that wants to be in a protected environment probably should work in a big company, but they're never going to make it as a great leader. 
That makes a lot of sense. Even though Travis Kalikanik might not have been the best leader, it was a strategy that he employed where he had these general managers across many different cities, including New York and in San Francisco, that would basically run Uber like it's a separate business in that city. And one of the people who I talked to was Josh Moore, who was a general manager over at Uber New York when they were a very small team. And he had to overcome a lot of these regulatory challenges and things that you mentioned to be able to build that team and be a leader. Well, listen, Uber is one of the great innovations of our time. A brilliant idea, an incredibly easy app to use. You know, it's it, the, the, that whole concept was amazing. The problem is Travis didn't have the maturity to build an organization. And he was like a, a group of overgrown fraternity boys and was very abusive toward women. A lot of things that went on that were totally inappropriate. It didn't accept people from diverse backgrounds. And so it was really a headquarters problem that uh, he really didn't take the time to build the culture of a sustainable organization. So the organization was not sustainable. I just noticed yesterday they made some, they had some real problems with the law, which they're pressing limits. I understand. And the unions didn't like it, but I thought they were doing wonderful things. The new CEOs come in and done a lot of good things to make, to use the strengths and reshape it. So I think Uber has a great, great future ahead of them. I agree. And I've talked with many startup founders, and I've noticed a couple of times where the founder is focused very heavily on raising the next round from investors, where their customers get blurred out of the picture. How can leaders keep their customers at the forefront and not become distracted by other operations of the business? This is a huge problem when you go public or even just you're advancing to the next next level of investor, next round of investment. It takes enormous amount of time. The way I handle it, have a great CFO and let them handle that. And no matter how good you are at finance, let them handle that. There are times you have to have the meetings, of course. But I would take my calendar every year and mark out all the times I'm going to spend with customers. And of course, Medtronic was a big global company. Honeywell is a big global company. And I would just say, these are the days I'm going to be in Japan. These are the days I'm going to be in China. These are the days I'm going to be in Germany or in France. And I'm going to be in Africa and just put those on the calendar. And those are immovable so that you have that marked out. Otherwise, customers get short shrift and you don't have time for them. Or the times I'm going to be in LA or the time I'm going to be in Atlanta or Columbus, Ohio. You know, you want to get these, you want to say, I spent, I spent, my policy was spend a third of my time with customers, third of my time with employees. And the other third was a mix of strategy sessions, business meetings, mentoring sessions, time with my board of directors, time with investors. But I would say I'm only willing to do three investor conferences a year. Now, we're a big company. We weren't going through rounds of trying to get there. That's not so easy for an entrepreneur. But you can get totally sucked into that. And you lose sight. It's very short-term oriented. You lose sight of what you're trying to build. But you have to keep the company going while you are doing it. So cash, cash is king or queen, if you will. And you want to make sure you always have enough cash and you're not so highly leveraged. And the other thing that happens, and I would advise, I've seen a number of my students and mentees who started companies and frankly got taken over by private equity and got pushed out or by venture capitalists who pushed them out because they gave up control to someone else. So I think one has to be quite careful about that because you, I've seen people tossed out at the peak when they were doing exceptionally well. They got forced out because someone wanted a gray hair to come in there and they were 29 years old and they want somebody 59 to come in. And it was kind of a tragedy. I thought it was totally unfair. So be careful who your investors are. Do they have common objectives? 
if they're just trying to make a quick hit and dump your company after three years, it's not going to work because you can't build a company in three years. You can get it going, but you can't reach success or peak. Yeah, it's a great point. I think keeping an eye on who you take money from is super important. Along with, I think the way I think of it is the second you take money from outside investors, you have to be okay with that you basically gave up control of the company because you now have a fiduciary duty to shareholders. But in speaking of the customer side, it's actually something that Eric Yuan, who's the CEO of Zoom, employed a while back at Cisco. And in Cisco, he noticed that the customers were no longer happy with the product. He brought it up with Cisco's executive team who didn't really care about it. He's like, hey, it doesn't matter. And so he decided to go on and build Zoom to build something that customers actually wanted. And because he did that, he was able to build the multi-billion dollar giant to what we know today. But if he didn't focus on the customers, we may not have ever heard that story. Yeah, think of where Tisco would be if they had Zoom as part of, <laughs> and Eric was running it. Eric might be better off running his own company. Hey, by the way, I just commented about Zoom. They saved us in COVID. You know, at Harvard Business School, in seven days, we converted 100% from in-person teaching. This is over spring break in March of 20. And when everyone left, it was, you know, it was in live classes. When they came back seven days later, they were told not to come back and they're going to be in front of a Zoom screen. And everyone didn't know if the backbone of the IT system would hold. So it's been a brilliant innovation. And now, how does Eric keep that going? So, but he's done an amazing job. So these are the kind of entrepreneurs I talk about in my book. And these are the kind of emerging leaders we need, both inside great organizations and people that are going to start their own. Cisco is a great company. I'm kind of sad that Cisco didn't listen. That's the problem with the bureaucracy. Are you really listening to the young people? Are you, as the leader, out there all the time? I spent all my time. I didn't want to spend my time sitting in a three-hour meeting. I think it's ridiculous. I think you've got the best innovations, the interactions I had were in the hall or in the labs or walking into production floors or sitting in a lunchroom, not in some executive dining room, but out there with your people. So if you don't want to do that, you probably should pack it in and not, not be an executive of your company. And a lot of people get complacent and they just want to deal with paperwork and you know emails and all that. But you've got to be out there all the time. And so I think that's, I'm, you'll find my book very anti-bureaucracy. And I think that's the old command and control. That's why GE failed. That's why other big companies have failed because they didn't adapt to the people in your generation, Seamus, and what their desires are and what they can do and open the door to give them an the opportunity, you know? And uh, I just never understood why people don't realize these, these, these are the key to your organization, to the young people coming up. And you've got to inspire them. You've got to mentor them. You've got to guide them. You've got to help them because they don't know everything, but you want to help them. But you also want to open the door and give them the opportunity. So that's why I wrote the book to focus on emerging leaders. And because I think the wise CEOs, the older leaders that I focus on in the book, you know, are the, the ones that really understand that. Somebody like Patrice Louvet at Ralph Lauren, who's 55 years old, understands this is a young person's company and the designers are young. You've got to inspire them, you know? And so that's why I'm trying to focus and give these opportunities. You know, Mary Barra, General Motors understood that. It was an old line bureaucracy, transformed the company. Fantastic, you know? Yeah, I agree. And speaking of guiding them, in Chapter 10, you walk through the ability for leaders to coach instead of direct, standing for a caring, organizing, aligning, challenging, and helping. What is the difference between being a leader who coaches their employees compared to directing them? This is the difference between 20th century leadership, where it's command and control. 
Seamus, I want you to do this and come back to me in 60 days and report on what you've done. Okay. And here are your directions. And then I'll have people checking up on you. That's the directive command and control style. Today's style is one of empowering, but you need to be coached as you're empowered. You know, people say, you know, it's not anarchy. And I think we all need coaches, but the first thing you need to do is a leader. And I think when you're leading other leaders, it's very different than leading people who are, say, working in a production line, working in Salesforce. If you're leading leaders, the first thing you have to do is show people you care about them because people are not going to listen to what you say until they know you care about them. That's how you build trust. That's the first and most important thing. Then back to my sports analogy, you want to organize them on the field to get them in their sweet spots. So you're using their strengths and abilities and what they're excited about doing. You're giving them those opportunities. Then you want to align them around a common purpose and a common goal, set of goals and a common set of values. And when you get that alignment, boy, then you're playing as a team. And then fourth, I think as a coach, this is, some people saw this as soft. This is not soft. If you ever work for, you look at the great coaches of the world, a guy like Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, you know, they're very challenging people. Seems like a very value-centered guy. He is. He's very challenging to his players. I had one of his players in my classroom and said, man, he, every day he was in my face telling me I could do better. Matt, you're not bringing us your best game today. Same is true in business. You want to challenge people to do better, to set high, more aggressive goals, not something safe and comfortable. Those people are not going to make it. And then finally, you as a leader, as I've been saying this whole time, Seamus, you need to get out and help people. Hey, I can help you do better. I can show you. Let's work with together. How can we solve this problem? Not just you're on your own. If you fail, tough luck. Kid. No, you want to be with people, helping them find solutions. Hey, you know, at Medtronic, I know a doctor that could help you solve this problem. Let's get him in here and see if or get her in here. And let's see if they can help us get through this very tough medical problem we got. I agree. It's why I'm a huge fan of people solving problems that people have and just people who are problem solvers for the company. But also, before we wrap it up here, in the book, you talked about the stories of leaders without leading with True North, like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, WeWork's Adam Newman, and Theranos' Elizabeth Holmes, and a couple more. What are some of the similarities among these leaders, and how can emerging leaders avoid making the same mistakes? Well, this is an object lesson to young leaders. So some people are going to read the book and say, oh, I'm picking on Mark Zuckerberg. Hey, he's one of the wealthiest people in the world, highly successful. But since he was 19, he didn't have a clear set of his values. And so he's got himself in an enormous amount of trouble by anything goes. And so some not so good people have been on the Facebook site and really doing very, very bad things. Obviously, Cambridge Analytica situation a few years ago, but there have been a lot more. And he's never cleaned that up. And he could clean it up but he doesn't want to give up any users. And so he wants to go to his advertiser say, I got so many users. Rather than having a sound seat site like Reed Hoffman did at LinkedIn, where there you have very sound set of users. I use LinkedIn all the time. I tell you, everyone on LinkedIn, I, I don't get any weird comments. Facebook, you get a lot of weird, weird, weird comments and weird people coming on your site. And so I think Mark kind of lost. He didn't have his true north. He started leading too young and he never got his true north. And he doesn't really listen. He had some great mentors, but he isn't listening to them. And they're all gone now. He pushed them all out. Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. Now that, unfortunately, that was a company built on a false premise, on a fraud that you could, one prick of the finger would be the same as a blood draw from your arm. It's not. And, and you know, I was on the board of Mayo and I talked to the top doc, medical scientist at Mayo. There's no possible way you could do that and get the kind of 
But you got to build a company on a solid premise. If that, and you need to have data. You need to have proof statements that this works. Okay, we know Uber works. Back to that. We know that application works. Theranos never worked. Facebook works. They just didn't clean up their site. They didn't keep control. And he kind of created a monster because he didn't set. So set the values early. Here are the values we stand for. Look, there are a lot of people that want to do nefarious things with a high growth company. No, no, we're not going to work with that. Okay, maybe slow our growth a bit. But what we have is really solid. It's like a, we're building a, 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 little, a, a small tree into an oak tree. And it's going to build something really solid. You've mentioned several other companies that built really solid, solid enterprises because they built from a solid base premise. And you can do that. Medtronic, when I went there, you know, I went there late. I didn't start the company. And the company was uh, 750 million sales today. It's about 32 billion. It's gone from 4,000 people to 100,000 because it was built on a solid premise and high levels of integrity. And, uh, and sure, they make mistakes, but everyone, every company does. So, and I think the sad thing, and I wrote about in the book, is leading without true north. You need to work hard to learn, what is my true north? Who am I? What would I do under pressure? How would I handle this situation? And that's your real test. And who am I going to listen to? And am I going to be introspective enough and have the self-awareness go up? These are the mistakes I made. So in all my classrooms and everyone I work with, I say, you got to acknowledge your mistakes. You can't cover them up. I made a mistake. Here's why I lost my job, but I was partly responsible for it. So the next time I do it, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. Or this business I started failed because I didn't listen to people wiser than I was. I could have, but I didn't. So that's the kind of advice I'm trying to give in this book, Seamus, is help emerging leaders uh, really flourish and reach their full potential. And if everyone on this call could do that, we'd have a lot better world. Definitely. I agree. And one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg just didn't do is he had the Cambridge analytical scandal, but instead of taking responsibility and trying to fix it, he just went on to try to pivot his company to meta and rebrand it instead of admitting yeah. what his mistakes were. And I think that's a problem where I think we have to make sure that leaders are taking responsibility for their actions. Yeah, that that's a great point. Thank you for saying that. Take responsibility for your actions. And learn from the experience and then go clean it up. You can't just say, oh, we're, we're going into a different business now. And all you Facebook user leaders, well, that, that's kind of yesterday's business. Today, tomorrow it's VR and we're going to spend all this money in VR. Maybe you are, maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. Who knows? And he's a very creative guy. So I don't want to rip on him in that sense. He's a very wealthy guy, a lot wealthier than I'll ever be. But on the other hand, he could do a lot better and have a lot more sustainable enterprise because frankly, I have a lot of all my family, I can't, no one's on Facebook anymore, whether it's my sons and daughters-in-law who are Gen Xers or my grandkids who are Gen Zs, none of them are on Facebook. They all find other sites because they don't trust it. It's not the kind of place they want to be, which is a tragedy. You know, I hope they're still going to use Medtronic products and they need it too because they have type 1 diabetes or whatever because they trust the company. So let me just say, Seamus, everything you do in business about building trust, everything you do in your life, the people trust you. And frankly, if I don't trust you, I'll give you my trust. But if you violate my trust, then I can't work with you. I agree. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for the audience? And where can they find more and learn more about your book? Well, the book will come out is, is hitting the market August 30th. And uh, I think the takeaways that, that I would say are really is be who you are. Find your true north. Discover your true north. Go through the and live, grow from your life story, learn from your crucibles, 
because that's where you find out who you are, not when you're a super success, but when things don't go your way. Learn from that crucible and then search hard to find your North Star, which is the purpose of your leadership. And it may take several jobs, several what I call rubbing up against the world where things you like or don't like, you find out where you are because leaders, you can't, you don't work in a cave. You're not a monk. You're out there in the real world and deciding, you know, where can I find my my purpose? It took me a while to find that. And I think a lot of people, it takes time. I had a lot of idealistic ideas and I had to learn not everyone had my best interests at heart. And then surround yourself with a support team of wise people that care about you and you care about. And uh, and when you have that team around you, then you have people listen to other people's advice and mentors and guides who have been through there before. If you can do those things, you'll have a great career. But at the end of the day, pick out something where you can really make a difference in the world. Uh, I feel like I'm making a difference in the world trying to change leadership because I thought leadership was all wrong in my era. And I'm trying to have to ask people, everyone on this call, be authentic, be your real self. Don't fake it to make it like Elizabeth Holmes. Be who you are. And if you can be who you are, you're going to have a much more enjoyable life and uh, you're going to flourish and you do a lot better for the long run. For sure. And to wrap it up here, thank you everyone for t- tuning the book in. Look to- at Amazon, or you can get it <laughs> online. You can get it in most bookstores as of August 30th. But before that, you can pre order it anytime on Amazon and uh, it's available. So I'm very excited about it. So thank you for asking. Definitely make sure to check it out. I'll have a link posted in the description below for anyone interested in learning more about the book or pre-ordering it. But for thank you everyone for tuning into the Embit Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to drop a five-star review down below. And thank you, Professor George, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Seamus. Good luck to you. I appreciate it.